If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 11. Luke 11, where we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. When we first moved to Burbank, we the house we, the house we bought was uh, repossessed by the bank, and it was your classic fixer-upper. And shortly after moving in, I heard noises at nighttime in the attic. The sound of little feet and little pairs of yellow teeth gnawing on wood. And uh, I figured we probably had rats in our attic. And uh, it, it's kind of a strange phenomena that wives don't like the thought of rats living above their head. <laughs> so I told my wife, get up there. No, um, <laughs> I didn't say that. So anyways, I went up there and actually I spent the whole day cleaning out the attic. And there wasn't the insulation up there, but there was all sorts of, you know, 50 years of trash up there. You know, cardboard, and, you know, half inch of dust and just all sorts of things that the rats drug in. And so as I'm slowly cleaning out everything and got the shop back up there, kind of vacuuming it all out, I did encounter several pods of rats who all ran towards a certain spot and disappeared into where the roof kind of narrowed down. I thought, I wonder where they're going. And uh, anyways, after I got through cleaning everything out, I climbed down and went outside and I, I then I understood how they were getting in. There was a branch that was underneath the, the eave and it was just right underneath one of those vents that just happened to have a hole knocked into it, one of the screen of the attic vents, and they were just crawling in there and uh, living in the house. So I had I then had two options. I could either live in the attic and keep them scared out, which wasn't good because I hit my head when I'm in the attic, or I could cut off the limb and seal up the hole, which is what I did, and we haven't had any rats since then. But I tell you this story because it's very similar to what happens in our text this morning. It's a good picture of what happens in the life of an unbeliever. In this case, a person who's been demon-possessed and has had Satan evicted from his house. And so this morning, we're going to find out about this. Uh, Our text is actually a continuation of what we have already looked at in verses 14 uh, through 20 as we begin to look at Jesus now dealing with those who are enslaved by Satan. It's actually a contrast. The first half of the chapter, a portion of the chapter, is dealing with the kingdom of God. Now we're dealing with the kingdom of Satan and how that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. We learned last week that there is a a spiritual realm that is all around us that we can't see with our eyes, that we can't experience with our senses, but it exists and it is full of holy angels and demons who are waging war over us. Over us, believe it or not. We are the plunder. If you're an unbeliever, then demons want to keep you unsaved. They want to keep you deceived and deluded. If you are a believer, they want to keep you distracted, absorbed in the things of the world so that you don't give glory to God. The holy angels are, though, ministering to us. I mean, we don't think about it because we don't 
experience it with our senses. But Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says this of angels. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service to the saints? So what that means is, is you have angels ministering to you. Isn't that interesting? Just like you have demons opposing you. And God wants us to think about this spiritual realm, the reality of it, the consequences of it, and not to be distracted. God wants us to think about the fact that we are in a battle for truth, for the souls of men, for the glory, for his glory. Satan doesn't want us to think about those things. He wants us to be distracted with the world and food and TV and pleasures and things that are passing that have no eternal consequences. Just to waste your life just thinking about the now and your job and your paycheck and fashions and whatever it is. Just junk stuff. That has no eternal consequences. Satan wants you to just just think about that because he knows that when you're thinking about God, when you're thinking about angels, when you're thinking about demons in the spiritual realm, then you're going to be less likely to sin because eternity is being thrust into your face. But when you have your mind set on the world, then it's much more easy to sin because now it's just you and the world and living from day to day, indulging in the flesh. Well, as we looked in verses 14 through 20, we learned that Jesus is Lord over Satan. He cast the demon out with the word, with no elaborate ritual. He doesn't call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just does it of his own will. He just sees the man and just come out of him. He just heals the man like he had done many other times before. Now... The problem is, is at this time, though large crowds have seen him do these miracles, the religious leaders have seen him do these miracles, and they don't like Jesus. They don't like Jesus because he's exposed their hypocrisy. He's called them blind guides of the blind. He's called them hypocrites. He's called them the children of Satan. And so they don't like him, obviously. And so they can't deny the miracles. The miracles are just undeniable. He, I mean, he's wandering around the country doing thousands of them. So they have to face the fact that Jesus is doing miracles. That is undeniable. But they don't want to say that Jesus is doing it by the power of God, because if he is doing it by the power of God, then that means that what Jesus says about them is true, and that means they're children of Satan going to hell and false teachers. But of course, they're religious leaders of Israel. So they can't accept that conclusion. So they came up with a brilliant idea that Jesus is doing these things by the power of Satan. That must be it. Well, this is to commit what Jesus calls the unpardonable sin. Whenever he did a miracle and that miracle was attributed to Satan... Jesus says that is the unpardonable sin. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, it says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has, never has forgiveness, but has, is guilty of eternal sin. Now that's bad. Eternal sin. You'll never be forgiven. You believe that Jesus does miracles by the power of Satan. It's over. You're going to hell. There is no savior for you. Well, Jesus, concerned about this, concerned that more people in the crowd might be swayed to these 
false conclusions goes to his own defense. The first thing he says is, listen, a kingdom divided itself can't can't stand. If Satan is fighting Satan, his kingdom's going to fall. I can't be doing stuff by the power of Satan. I can't be undoing Satan's works. Then Satan would be fighting his own self. It's ridiculous. And then he says, and by the way, who do your sons cast out demons? And then they're kind of quiet because they know that, well, our sons do it by the power of God. And Jesus says, well, they're going to be your judges. Because that's the power I'm wielding right now before you. And Jesus even says, I want you to know that the kingdom of God is now in your midst. Why? Because Jesus was the king. Because Jesus was exercising authority. Because Jesus had his subjects. Because Jesus was over his creation. And when you have all those things, you have all the elements of the kingdom of God. And he was saying, right now, the kingdom of God is in your face. And you're rejecting it. And so that is where we left off. But that is not where the text leaves off. And so keep in mind, as we're working through the passage this morning, that Jesus is continuing his discussion and defense of his healing or casting this demon out of this demon-possessed man. So look in your Bibles at verse 21. Now he goes into another illustration. We're still on the same passage with the same argument, with the same focus, and that is his authority to cast out demons and the implications of that. He says, verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and find and not finding any. It says, I will turn to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. All right, from this section, we're going to see three facts about demon possession and how salvation is the answer to those facts and their terrible consequences. Keep in mind, Jesus has just cast the demon out of the the man. They've all seen it. Then some people have said, religious leaders, oh, he has done this by the power of Satan. Others said, just show us another sign from heaven. You know, forget what the miracles tell us about you. We just wanted to see another sign. Entertain us. So that's the setting. Jesus comes into his town. He, the, the, their town. He's got his disciples. He's got not just the 12, but probably a large group. And behind that, a huge crowd. As we'll see in verse 29, the crowd just keeps increasing as people just begin to envelop the whole town as he does this miracles and begins to teach. They knew demons were powerful. They knew Jesus cast out the demon out of the guy. I mean, it was obvious. The guy's the town mute. He's the lunatic. They figure he's probably demon possessed. Who knows? But they know about this guy for how long. And Jesus then with the word commands the demon come out and the guy can speak. I mean, he's healed. You can't deny it. They try and say, oh, you did it by Satan. Jesus blows that argument out of the water. And now... He's going to come down on them pretty hard. He's going to continue to refute their false thinking. 
And the first thing that we see here is your Savior, again, is stronger than Satan. How do we know that? Look at verse 21. He starts out with a very simple illustration. I love this because when Jesus starts talking about theology, he doesn't talk about, you know, propitiation and, and, you know, big words, you know, providence and all those ints and shun words that we like to use that make people fall asleep instantly. Um, He just begins with a simple illustration. He says, now, when a strong man... And as we shall go down, we will find out who the strong man is. The strong man is Satan. The strong man is Satan. So when a strong man, fully armed, so he's not just strong. And we're talking about Satan or or demons by proxy since he controls them. So we're talking about Satan or one of his demons, strong and fully armed. I mean, one, one commentator said, man, he's armed to the teeth. And... And what is he armed with? Well, Satan does his work by lies and deceptions. He is the master deceiver. He tricks people into believing lies, to believing falsehoods, to thinking things are true that are not, and to denying things that are true and thinking or thinking they're false. And he is the strong man. He is fully armed. And look in the middle of verse 21. He's guarding his own house. Now you need to understand here. Most translations have house here or dwelling. Um, But what's interesting is the word literally means courtyard. And this is actually the area between an outer defense wall and a castle. That's what he's talking about. And and that's where the guards would be stationed. So if a castle was attacked and they were able to get over the wall, they would defend the castle from the flat courtyard that surrounded it. And so it's probably best to describe this as his little citadel, his his castle, that he is fully armed and he's guarding. So if they can get over the wall, he's ready to go to battle with them. Finally, at the end of verse 21, we are told the outcome of all this. His possessions are undisturbed. Why? Because he not only has a castle, they're locked in there. He has a courtyard, which is he's well armed and, and guarding that. And then there's this outer defense wall. So, you know, he's he's secure. He's got his 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 treasures. Look at verse 22. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him and takes away from him all his armor, which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Now, uh, that's a pretty simple illustration. You got your strong man, you got your armor, you got your courtyard, your outer wall, the castle. Someone comes, beats him up and drives him away. Okay, it's a no brainer. All right. Well, we know that Jesus has just cast out the demon and now he's arguing where his power comes from. He's still talking about demon possession. So we say, okay, well, who's the strong? Well, the strong man is Satan who enters into a person or a demon who enters into a person. And then who's the stronger man who kicks him out? Well, that's Jesus is what he's just done. He's just kicked out the demon with the word. He has in in effect overcome the power of Satan with the word and evicted the demon from the man. As a consequence, the strongest man subdues the strong man. That is, Jesus subdues Satan or one of his demons. Now, the only way you can do this is if you're God. And they all knew that. They all believed that, except in the case of Jesus. 
Then they had come to this weird conclusion that he did it by the power of Satan. But Jesus is more concerned with the crowds now because he knows the religious unbelievers, a lot of them are just, they're hard-hearted. But he wants to make sure the crowds don't go there. And he's just saying, listen, you got to be stronger than the strong man to overcome his citadel, his castle. I have just overcome that demon. I have just, with a word, commanded that demon to come out of that man. And the lesson to learn here is that Jesus is stronger than Satan. The application is this fact that you need to repent and believe in Jesus because he is stronger than Satan. At the end of the age, Satan is not going to defend you from hell. He is not going to keep you from hell. He's not going to be a savior. He is not going to say, well, listen, you live for me all your life. And therefore, I am going to come to your aid. I'm going to do a little plea bargain here. You'll be able to live in heaven, but just not in a very good place. No. He is not a savior. He is a deceiver. He knows where he's going and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. And so we need to make sure that we have believed in Christ for salvation. Not just believe things about Jesus, but trusted him as our savior. Secondly, you can sit on the fence. You can't sit on the fence because there is no fence. That's what we learned secondly. You can't sit on the fence because there is no fence. Look at verse 23. Jesus very forcefully says to those who will not believe in him. And granted, the, the, the man who's been demon possessed, that guy is there and the, he's cast the demon out of that man. But the religious leaders are there and this huge crowd is there. And he makes this very forceful statement. He who is not with me is against me. Now, That is a very simple but profound either-or statement. There are two kinds of people. Those aligned with Satan and those who are aligned with God. You are either for Jesus or against Jesus. There is no fence. There's no fence. There's a certain kind of person who is religious, who comes to church, who sits through services, who may give, who may serve, who may go to a Bible study. But they haven't given their life to Christ. And in their mind, a lot of those people think this. Well, I'm not. I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I'm going to church, aren't I? I'm listening to you, aren't I? I mean, it's not like I'm out right now just totally rebelling against God. It's true that I still have sins in my life and I'm still thinking about coming to Christ, but I'm not as far away as those people out there. That is the lie. That is the lie. Yes, you are. You're more far away because they don't have what you have. You see... The lie is, is that there are some people who can be neutral. Jesus is speaking to this huge crowd and they're all looking at him. They've heard false lies. They've seen Jesus defend himself, but their people are thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know. Do you think he's the Messiah or not? I mean, he did do the miracles, but yeah, it could be of Satan. I don't know. I don't know if we should, you know, commit ourselves, Mildred. I think we should just, you know, hang in here for a while and just kind of see how this thing holds. And Jesus says, listen, you sit on the fence. You know what you're doing? You're aligning yourself with Satan against me. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. There is no fence. There's no fence. 
is what Jesus says. You're either for me or against me. There is no not for Christ, but not for Satan position. You're either for Christ and against Satan, or you're against Christ and for Satan. There is no middle ground. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the practical implications of this are chilling. The one who isn't truly saved, who comes to church, who's very religious, but has not repented of their sins, regardless of how diligent they are to practice their religion, no matter what they say with their lips and their words, that person is as lost as a Satan worshiper. They are just as aligned against the purposes of God, practicing their outward Christianity as a Satan worshiper. Think about that. That is just amazing. And why would Jesus say this? Because it's true. Because there are always those people who in their mind are deceived into thinking they're on the fence. They're pretty close to God. They're most of the way right with God. And though they haven't repented of their sins and given their life to Christ and really been born again, at least they're in the middle. There is no middle. There are those who are at war with God and those who are not. Those who have repented and received Jesus Christ and those who have not. Period. Those two groups. And all of us are in one of those two groups. There is no fence. Look at in the middle of verse 23. Jesus tells us the consequences of fence sitting. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And notice again, the sharp contrast. There's two things. You're either a gatherer or a scatter. What does that mean? This is shepherding imagery. If you look at this word scattered, it almost always refers to shepherds and sheep being scattered. And those sheep once being scattered, they have no shepherd. They're lost. They're roaming around lost. In first Kings chapter 22, verse 17, the prophet Micaiah answering the king's question as whether or not Israel should go to war tells him this. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain like sheep, which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. He says, listen, you go to war. This is what's going to happen. Israel's going to be all scattered and they're not going to have a leader. They're going to have no master. In Zechariah 13, 7, a prophecy that's quoted several times in the New Testament in relationship to Christ about his crucifixion and his disciples being scattered. Zechariah writes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And here again, you remember what happened when Jesus was tried and convicted? What happened? The disciples got scared and they all scattered. And pretty soon they didn't have a leader. They were just out there lost with no one to direct them. Or in John chapter 10, verse 12, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who is unlike the hired shepherd. And Jesus says, he was a hired hand and is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So the the imagery is this. Jesus is the good shepherd. And those who know Jesus gather to him. Those who do not are going to be scattered and lost. 
You remember what Jesus says down in John verse 10, verse 20, 27 in chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice and they what? They follow me. They gather to me and follow me. They are my sheep. I know them. I give them eternal life. And Jesus says, listen, you're in one of two camps. You either gather to me now or you are scattered. You are lost. You don't have a shepherd. Because I am the shepherd is what he's saying. Now, what if you're not demon possessed and yet you still don't want to possess, repent and and receive Christ as your savior? What if you're that person? Well, that moves us to our third point. If the Holy Spirit isn't your roommate, you're in trouble. Jesus is letting the crowd, these religious leaders, know the dire consequences of their fence-sitting. Fence Satan, using, ironically, the religious leaders, has now cast enough doubt in the minds of the people that they're unsure about who they should commit to. Should they commit to Jesus? Or they should listen to the religious leaders. I mean, there's a lot of religious leaders and there's only one Jesus, but Jesus is able to do miracles. Or maybe he's doing it by the power of Satan. And so they're confused. And now Jesus is forcing them to commit. You either commit to me or you commit to Satan. Actually, you either commit to me or you stay committed to Satan would be more accurate. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man. Now, stop there. Remember, we talked about demon possession is when one or more demons enter into a person and take total control of them from within. They're demon possessed. So when he says when a demon goes out of a man, he's talking about that demon being cast out, which is what Jesus just did. Remember, we're talking about demon possession. Demons, though strong, though armed with lies and deception, though on guard to maintain possession of their human host, can be evicted only by the power of God, which is what Jesus did. Now, we talked about this last week. God has not given us the ability to go out casting out demons. He hasn't given us the authority to heal the sick either. And just, you know, empty out hospitals. It would be really fun to do that. I would love to do that. Just kind of start at the top floor and just spiral on down and put the hospital out of business. Send everybody on a vacation or something. I don't know. Just stand at the emergency door and just fix people as they try and enter. Go home, go home, go home. It'd be great. God hasn't given us authority that. But we talked about last week that what he has given us authority to do is preach the gospel. That if you want to rescue somebody from Satan, from being held captive by Satan to do his will... Then how you do that is you preach the gospel, which is the power of God, that God empowers the gospel message to transfer those who repent and believe from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of Christ, to change them from being a follower of Satan to a follower of Christ, from being a child of Satan to a child of God. That happens in the gospel. We do have authority to preach the gospel. We are commanded to do that. And contained in that gospel message is the power of God. Keep that in mind. Now, things become very fascinating. For what happens to a demon when they are kicked out of their human host is now described by Jesus. And I think this is the only text in the whole Bible where it actually tells us just a little bit about what the life of a demon is like outside of possessing somebody. 
Look at the middle of verse 24. It, the demon, passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. And just stop there and think about that. A waterless place. What kind of a place is that? A deathly place. A desert place, an arid place. You don't have water, you don't have life. You've got to have water to have life. So when a demon is not possessing somebody, they live in a living death, basically, Jesus is saying. In Utah, there is this place called the Bonneville Salt Flats. 159 square miles of pure salt. Usually, most of it's about six feet deep. And it is so flat, you can see the curvature of the earth. And they like to, you know, race cars and try and break land speed records there because it's so flat. Because whenever they get an occasional rain, the rain comes and it smooths out everything. It fills in all the tire tracks and all the foot marks and it just becomes perfectly smooth again. Hard pack salt. And you know what? You can look a long time. You can't even find a weed there. It is a waterless wasteland. And that's how Jesus describes these, this demon who has been kicked out of this guy. He's like this demon who's just, just in a wasteland. There's nothing, no life, just nothing. Secondly, he describes him as seeking rest, which tells us that the demon wants rest. He wants peace. He wants comfort. He wants a place where he can relax. But the third thing Jesus says, though he is seeking, he doesn't find any place. In this arid wasteland, apart from possessing a human soul, he just lives in a constant death. And he hates it. He doesn't like it. And he can't find another place. So the demon continues in misery until, look at the end of verse 24, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now think about that. The demon refers to this person that it's been kicked out of, exercised from, still as his house. It's his house. Not someone else's house. He still is the owner. You think, well, Jack, how could that be? How could that be? Because the man hasn't repented. Just because Jesus casts a demon out of you doesn't mean you're instantly saved. You still need to repent and believe. Yes, demons, the demon has been kicked out, evicted. Satan has been cast out of this man's body, his soul, his house. But no one else has moved in. No one else has moved in. And look at verse 25. And when it comes, the demon comes, it finds it, the former human host, body and soul, swept and put in order. What does that mean? Well, the guy not having a demon with him is, you know, like in another place is described that after Jesus healed the guy, he was clothed and in his right mind. Remember that from chapter 9? It was a long time ago. But yeah. Think about that. I mean, maybe the guy finally got bathed. Maybe he put on some new clothes. I mean, you know, he's brushed his teeth. He's kind of cleaned up. He's got a new start on life. The demons aren't messing with him anymore. He's, he's doing great, but he hasn't accepted Christ. And so when the demon comes back to his old abode, it's looking better than it did in a long time than when he was there trashing it. 
Look at verse 26. Then it, the miserable demon who has been traveling in waterless places and has returned to his former house, his human host, which has been put in order and now is ready for occupancy, that demon goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself and they go in and live there. The word live means to dwell, to stay, to remain, to set up residence. I mean, the guy was in bad shape when he had one demon in him. Now he's got eight and seven are more wicked than the first. Look at the middle of verse 26. Jesus says that the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. No kidding. That is like a huge understatement, isn't it? Compounded worse. Because no one was home. The demon said, oh, the guy's got his life cut out. But (laughs) nobody's going to stop me from moving in. I mean, the, the gates are open. The courtyard's empty. The house is open. Let's move in. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to look at this. I want to read the chapter. It's going to be a little lengthy read. But I want, I want you to see that when somebody doesn't give their life to Christ, they're basically hanging a sign around their neck to Satan saying, I'm already yours, why don't you move in? That's what they're saying. I also want to just comment, because Second Peter talks about false teachers. The theme is false teachers. A lot of times, if I were to come up to you and I were to say, no, so tell me, uh, what is a false teacher? Well, what would you say? You'd probably say something like, well, that's somebody who quote, teaches false doctrine. I say, very good. And how do false teachers teach false doctrine? Say, well, you know, they talk to people and try and tell them lies and, you know, whatever. You know what? That's part of it. That's part of it. But this is something we don't always notice when you're reading the scripture. I want you to notice this just whenever you find false teachers. This is important. Somebody who says they're a Christian, who has sin in their life, is, by example, teaching false doctrine. They're teaching you can be a Christian and live like an unbeliever. And by their example, they're teaching false doctrine. Now, when we look at the text, we're going to see the guys who are in the pulpit, but then we're going to see the people who are in the church, who are religious, who call themselves Christians, who are false teachers of just a little different kind. Look what Peter says, Second Peter 2, 1 and following. But false prophets, there's the formal kind. The guys go around spouting things from pulpits and TV programs. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will, notice it's not publicly, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, there is the open proclaiming prophet type false teacher, and then there is the subtle 
false teacher who secretly introduces destructive heresies as in I can be a Christian and live in sin. Verse four. No, verse two. Many will follow after their sensuality. Keep note of that word. What is that? What does that word sensual mean? It means given over to pleasures towards fleshly indulgence. So you, you want the flesh to be pleased. You like food. You like sex. You like things that appeal to your eyes. Everything sensual. You are given over to sensuality. Sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Why? Because they say they're Christians, but they live sensually oriented lives. And their greed, that is their lust for power and money and things... They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now he goes into this little section, verses 4 and through 9, where he's going to talk about these people who are so bold and so brash that they're even even commanding Satan and commanding demons and pretending to be great spiritual leaders. He says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. I think this is a Genesis 6 reference when the sons of God, angels, cohabitated with the daughters of women, daughters of men. And he did not spare the ancient world, which because of that corruption, God judged the world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, um, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah not only for their wickedness, but their final act of wickedness was wanting to have relationships, angels with men, which is the same thing that happened in Genesis 6 reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives. There's the false teaching. Living an ungodly life is, an, is, a, is one way of false teaching. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the, here it is again, sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. There's the false teaching. Lawless deeds, not words. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the judgment for the day of judgment, and especially those who, here's another um, synonym for sensuality, who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. They're, you know, they're people out there commanding Satan. I mean, Michael the archangel did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but they're, they'll do it. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, notice, they're so given over to their flesh. They're like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reveling where they have no knowledge. Well, in the destruction of these, those creatures be also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. It's like, man, they're just... Peter says they're like animals. 
living for their flesh, for their appetites. And then they are targets for judgment. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. I mean, they are bold and brash. They are stains and blemishes. Where? In the church. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing and stable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. And here he just talks about these people, they wander through the church and they're just lusting after people, lusting after things, looking at people to just exploit. They are accursed children. He says their hearts are trained in greed. Their hearts are full of adultery. And he says, having followed the way of Balaam, you remember Balaam was supposed to curse Israel. And yet God intervened three times. The donkey had to rebuke him and he ended up giving blessing. Well, after that, then what Balaam did is he went to the enemies of Israel and said, listen, you're never going to be able to conquer them. God's on their side. But there's one way you can destroy Israel, and that is to get God to destroy them for you. So send your women over there and have them seduce the men of Israel. And when they commit acts of fornication with your women, what happens is God is so holy, he is so just, he'll destroy his own people for you. And that's what they did. And that's what God did in part. That's why he's so wicked. Verse 17, these, these people who lived ungodly lives among believers, professing to be believers, these are springs without water, mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires. There it is again by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom by they themselves are slaves of corruption for by what a man is overcome by this is he, he is enslaved. He says, you know, there's people out there saying, oh, I will set you free. Oh, I'll tell you how to defeat the sin. Oh, I'll tell you how to live a life of righteousness when that very person that what religious person who's speaking to you is himself enslaved to sin verse 20 for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ now just stop there for a second these people some of them come into the church They hear truth. They kind of get their life fixed up. They're like the demon-possessed man that Jesus cast the demon out of. He kind of gets his life in order, doesn't he? You know, he takes a shower. He gets some decent clothes on. He quits moaning and groveling in the dirt. I mean, the guy is kind of put in order, just like the people Peter is describing here. They have, by learning of the truth, kind of gone through this. They haven't repented to give their life. They've just kind of done some moral reform. So by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they have escaped the defilements for a world of the world for a time, but they are again entangled in them. That is, they go back to them, are overcome by their sins because not having Christ or the Holy Spirit in them, they have no power to fight their sin. Then listen to this phrase. The last state has become worse for them than the first identical phrase to our text. Now. You think, well, that sounds bad. It is bad. It's bad. I mean, if you're entangled in sin and you're on your way to hell, what could be worse than that? 
entangled in more sin and unavoidably on your way to hell, having heard the truth and rejected it, just like the people in our text in Luke. Look at verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command it handed to them. And it has happened to them according to a true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sour for washing returns to wallow in the mire. And these, this is the situation, the exact situation that the people in our text are in. They are faced with the Messiah who has performed miracles, who has defended himself, defended his deity, told them that they are either aligned with him or are Aligned with Satan. They either have gathered to him or they are gathering to Satan and therefore scattered. And now they all have to make a choice just like we all do. Because all of us in this room are in that same position. We're either gathering to Christ and pursuing righteousness from the heart out of love for God or we're not. We're aligned with Satan no matter how religious we are. Just like the people in the text. It's a scary thought. It's a very scary thought. I think most people do not even believe in demon possession or they believe it's kind of a thing of the past. Not so. You say, well, Jack, I mean, we don't see people, you know, with their heads spinning around, throwing up green vomit on people. It's like, no, that's Hollywood. No, we live in a very sophisticated society where Satan is doing everything he could. In this society, everybody believed in the spirit world, undeniably. They all believed in God. They all believed in Satan. They all believed in angels, demons. They believed it all. So there was no use trying to convince them that that world didn't exist. Of course it exists. Of course God is the creator. No, duh. Even pagans believe these things. And so Satan was very external. Now we are in an age where what? Well, God doesn't exist that, you know, everything happened out of nothing by nothing with nothing guiding it. And so now we live in this society where Satan is attacking us in a different way. He's trying to make us believe that God doesn't exist. There are no angels. There are no demons. Satan isn't opposing us. That we're nothing more than just a higher form of primordial slime going back to eventually the earth from where we evolved. And so when he possesses people today, he's much more civil. He's civil because he doesn't want to give himself any exposure. But that doesn't mean people are not possessed. I am sure that if Jesus were here, there'd be a lot of people crying out. Son of man, have you come here to torment us before our time? Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2. Satan is now working where in the sons of disobedience, unbelievers. That doesn't mean they're all possessed, but he has access. If you think you can be neutral, you are in fact allied with Satan against God. That's what Jesus teaches here. That is the entire thrust of the passage. No neutrality, no neutrality. So if you're one of those people who's thinking I'm, you know, one of these days, I'm really going to give my life to Jesus, but I'm just going to kind of get kind of morally reformed. I'm going to kind of come to church periodically and kind of be religious and tell people I'm saved, but I just don't want to give up my sins. Listen, what you're saying is Satan, I'm yours. You've got me. Use me as you want, as you have been and are doing now. That's what you're saying. And Jesus is saying, You better repent of your sins and gather to me. Gather to me. 
I am the shepherd. I am the savior. As William Cooper wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. There's only one way to evict Satan from your life, from being your master permanently. And that is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will invade your life. Christ will invade your life. And somebody will be home that's always bigger and badder than the strong man. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Jesus' arms are open wide. And he's just saying to you, believe in me. Trust in me. I am your Savior. So if you have not given your life to Christ... I would beg you to do that this morning and to know that you're not on the fence. You're aligned with Satan if you have not gathered to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this very sober text that confronts us, makes us examine ourselves to make sure that we aren't deceived in thinking that we can be a neutral party, that we can maybe not be following Jesus, but yet not be following Satan. That is a lie. That is the lie that Jesus exposes in the text. There are only followers of Satan and followers of Christ. Father, if there's somebody here, their heart is heavy within them and they realize they are living a lie and that Satan has them and they know he has them and that they are inviting him to continue to use them. I pray that they would repent, that they would know that Jesus died on the cross for them, that he shed his blood for them, that he was buried and resurrected on the third day, that if they are willing to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he will save them. Father, help them to do that. And for the rest of us who know you, may we acknowledge what's going on behind the scenes and may we live our lives acknowledging that we are in a war for truth and the souls of men and that that knowledge would motivate us to live more for your glory we pray in christ's name amen